I'm Sarah Resnick. And I'm LaShawn Moore. And we are the hosts of the Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Welcome to the 105th episode of the Weave Podcast. I hope you and your loved ones are all safe and healthy and that this time is bringing you lots of time to play at your looms. This week on the podcast, I'm talking to Ben Hostetler, the operations manager at Mountain Meadow Wool Mill. We're discussing what it's like to run a small family business in the wool industry, how ranchers and their mill are adapting to changes brought by COVID-19, and about their exciting Kickstarter for a new line of wool kids' clothing. We carry a wonderful line of Suffolk wool in our shop from Mountain Meadow Wool Mill that is very popular with weavers making rugs and other hardy home textiles. If you haven't already listened to episode 35 of this podcast, I encourage you to also take a listen because in that episode, I talked to Karen Hostetler, Ben's mother, about her journey to starting and running Mountain Meadow Wool Mill. And without further ado, thanks for coming on the podcast today, Ben. Welcome. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Glad to be here. So we had Karen, who I believe is your mother. Is that right? That's correct. Yes, (laughs) on the podcast about a year ago, talking about Mountain Meadow Wool and your family business. Um, But for folks who have not heard that podcast episode, I'm wondering if you can start out by sharing a bit about who you are and about your family business, Mountain Meadow Wool. What is it that makes what you do different about how you support local ranchers? Yeah, well, it's a, a fun business that I'm in. I, being part of the family business is always fun, I guess. It has its challenges, <laughs> too, but I always tell people I have a pretty good boss. My mom's a, a good boss to work for. Um, but we started, oh, we've been in business about 12 years now. The goal was to bring um, attention to the quality of, of premium wool that's available in the the state and the region as a whole. So if we look at Wyoming, Montana, South Dakota, Idaho, we produce some really fine wool, and historically that all gets blended together and most get sent overseas for production. And our goal was to find a way to show to the consumer that there's a premium fiber here in in the local area and um, to bring extra value to that. So a lot of those ranchers are subject to the ups and downs of the commodity markets, and we wanted to provide a little stability for that. So we have a unique role with the ranchers we work with. We don't buy the wool up front. We pay for it when we use it. And so the ranchers are helping us substantially in financing our wool purchases. But in return, we don't pay based on the market prices. So we establish a baseline and we'll never lower that baseline through the course of our our yarn production. And then if the markets do rise substantially above our baseline, we'll try to match that market rate. So it gives that rancher more stability. They can know what they're gonna get paid for year after year. And uh, it helps them to be a little more sustainable. So that's kind of the main difference between us and a lot of your mills in terms of how we work with the ranchers um, directly. And then, again, that traceability of of wool. We try to label everything that goes out the door with which ranch it came from. So it's a a fun thing to be able to say that this fiber came from this actual ranch. And I've been there and may have been there to help get it off off the animal. Hmm. Yeah, we did a collaboration recently with you and with with Liz Gibson of Yarnworker um, with some Suffolk wool yarn and a weave along that she led. And it was really neat for us and for our customers to know exactly what ranch those are coming from. I think it was Surprise Ranch. Yeah, fun for the rancher, too. When I show a rancher their product that was made with their fiber, um, you know, seeing a, a smile on the face and being like, hey, that came from my sheep. And they're they're pretty excited. 
Yeah, yeah. So does your family also have a background in ranching? Why was it that you decided that you wanted to start this and support ranchers in your region? <laughs> My mom will always talked about uh, how it's scaled and grown much different than she initially envisioned. Um, she always liked fiber and textiles as a, in general. Um, and it just kind of came about as, you know, what do I do when my, my last sibling was graduating from high school and my mom had sat down and said, like, well, what am I going to do now that the kids are all graduated? And um, it, it started out with the idea of a craft store downtown and it scaled and, and changed drastically from that initial vision. Hmm. But, yeah, we, do, we don't have our own ranch. We've had sheep during oh, high school and middle school in 4-H, but that was the extent of our, our sheep experience. Have you been involved with the company from the beginning? Um, as they were getting started, I was out in college, and I would be involved. Um, I'd do class projects, and uh, homework assignments would be based on, on mill problems. Um, so I was always involved remotely. And then, oh, I think it was in like 2012, I came home to, to work full-time and help run the business. Hmm. And what is your role? Uh, it's interesting. Like I'm technically the operations manager, and that has a lot of different hats. But I'll run run equipment when I need to, um, plan, schedule, do all of our costing and our our kind of our planning on machinery and efficiencies, and um, just kind of overall management. That's great. And how how did you learn that? I mean, did you? It, it sounds like you probably didn't work at another mill before you worked at this mill. How have Correct. you been learning on the job as you've been figuring all this out in your family business? Yeah, that's you know a challenging part of textiles in the United States is our lack of uh, technical know-how and knowledge base. We've lost a lot of that in the last 20 or 30 years. Um, so most all of my knowledge is on-hands training. Um, I'm an engineer by trade, so I was an engineer up in Alaska for a while and uh, much different, not a textile engineer by any sort. So uh, it's been a, definitely a learning curve for me in the textile world. Um, but lots of just on on the ground, boots on the ground, doing some training day in, day out, and learning a lot of new things. I, I, every day I learn something new about wool that just fascinates me. And so it's uh, a continually, continually learning. Hmm. And so you shared some about the ways that you guys partner with ranches, but tell us a little bit about your yarn. Who do you make yarn for? Where can people find it? And things like that. Sure. Well, we make obviously for, for just yarn. Yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> so we we do oh, probably about 20% of our business would be um, larger commercial, I would say, to... Um, maybe apparel companies even that want to do a custom yarn in their apparel line. So it won't even be going into the yarn world. Um, and, and that's been growing over the years. I think a lot of your apparel companies are wanting more of a U.S. made uh, traceable story. So that's been kind of a, a fun part to it. And then we do a lot of um, wholesale to brick and mortar stores around the country. That was actually our very first market we ever sold into was uh, just yarn stores around the country. And then we have a lot of indie dyers who will dye themselves as well. So, um, We'll do uh, like Farmer's Daughter as one that we've been doing for the last this last year or so. Um, Plucky Knitter was one we've done a several several custom yarns for, um, and, and we'll do both our stock yarns and also custom yarns. So it's kind of a fun blend of what we get to do, where we'll develop a unique blend or a unique yarn, and we also um, that's be from our side of the, of the story. And then a client can come in and say, "Hey, I want a here's what I'm looking for. Can you make it?" And we do a lot of custom production there. Hmm. Hmm. And um, so you make yarn for knitters and for weavers and for the 
um, for folks in apparel industry. So yeah, it's pretty things. versatile. It's it's yeah. quite and everyone is a little different too. So they're each each uh, each demographic definitely has their own unique needs in terms of what the best yarn is. So sure. it's kind of fun. Sure. Is it different kinds of equipment that you have to use for different kinds of markets, or is it similar equipment that you tool up in different ways? Similar equipment. Yep. Usually, is uh, different breeds we'll use for different purposes. Um, so the the breed is often the first deciding factor. And then uh, how much twist we put into the yarn, um, both in the, sp- the spun singles and also in the ply, um, that usually dictates the, the end use. So what are some of your favorite parts of running this mill with your family? I would say the diversity of what we do. Um, we've been able to do a lot of unique research on projects. So. Most of your, some people may not know this, but there's not a single four-year university left in the country that has a wool um, wool processing capability. And so the last couple of them shut down here in the early 2000s. And so we get a lot of requests from the R&D side to test new blends um, and see how different fiber types interact with each other. Uh, and that's pretty fun. So we've done some Oh, from like agave fiber came from Mexico at one point. Wow. So it came basically raw pulp, and we, we had to try and blend it. We've done some um, spider silk testing with blending with wool. Uh, so a bunch of fun different projects, and, and that's it always keeps something interesting going on. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Agave. So you blended that with wool. Correct, yeah. What was the end use that people were going for there? They were looking for a really um, kind of durable rug yarn. Hmm. The problem was their their agave that they sent was it hadn't been processed at all yet, and we we had a lot of trouble opening it up to blend well with the wool. So it was still very very rustic when it came out the other end. Yeah, huh? Interesting. What are some of the biggest challenges that you have faced over the year in a small mill? family, business, textile, industry, all of the things that can bring challenges. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are numerous ones for sure. Um, the greatest challenge this past year, there, there's been several. I mean, obviously the, the coronavirus has really changed the way we look at things this year. Um, every year we're pretty slow, February, March, April. Um, so this came at a really bad of the time of year for us anyway. Um, but I, I really, uh, kind of our philosophy here is, that um, that necessity often drives innovation. And so when we have a need, we get creative and find new products and look at new markets. And so I think a lot of those, those challenges also help us grow. Um, we do, on a kind of a routine basis, it's always a challenge with the, the unique fibers from each ranch. So Rambouillet wool from one ranch isn't going to be the same as Rambouillet wool from another ranch. And that's just, it's a fascinating feature, um, but also challenging. So we'll go into the production line, and we have one actually going this week right now. We have a, a ranch going through, and we're seeing some odd things happening in the, in the production process. And so then we start working backward to see what is unique about this fiber. Uh, we may have ran the same fiber a year ago for that same rancher, but did they have um, a wetter spring, a wetter summer? Was there more vegetation on the range? And that can all affect the properties of the growth of the fiber. Hmm. And is that the kind of thing that 
people will notice in in all mills when people are also blending wool from lots of different ranches or is it something that you are able to notice and address much more specifically because you're working with one ranch at a time yeah your your large commodity industry and so the bulk of your wool yarns in the industry are are going to be done in the large commodity scale and at that scale the goal is blending, blending, blending to create a very uniform product so you don't have variability. Um, it's, variability is hard to control and it reduces processing efficiencies. So in, in your large textile supply chain, um, the goal is to not see any variation and they achieve that through blending a lot from a lot of different producers, a lot of different breeds. And so we, we would definitely see that a lot more at our scale. Um, usually we can catch it when it comes in under the raw fiber um, and so we'll do a lot of testing from each available that comes through to, to see unique parameters or characteristics of that individual bale that came in for production. And does that change the kind of yarn or end use that you would choose for it? Or what does that change about how you process? It does. So we do both uh, fully combed yarns and non-combed yarns, which we call our semi-worsted line. And if a, it's not uncommon for a ranch to have, um, on a percent basis, they might have half a percent vegetation in their raw wool one year and one and a half percent of vegetation the next year. And it doesn't sound like a lot there in terms of percentages, but that's, you know, two, three times more vegetation in that fiber. So we won't take that fiber if it's got one and a half percent vegetation. It won't go into a non-combed yarn just because there'll be too much vegetation in the finished product. Um, and that could be the same ranch, just different years based on how much snowpack was out there on the range. Interesting. So you'll just use that for, for different kinds of things. I'm curious, how have the challenges changed over the years if they if they have as you've grown and as you've deepened relationships with your customers and your ranchers? I'm, I'm yeah. interested in that. Um, they've changed. A lot of it would be in the, as we get larger volumes, uh, larger production through the mill, um, we started out very small, so we, we didn't make a lot of yarn when we first started. Uh, we Now we make quite a bit of yarn and consistency in the finished spun yarn. Um, how do we get that better? And so it's constantly improving the performance and the, um, the quality of that finished product. And we're much pickier we were are, are now than we were 10 years ago. Um, so little bits of variation are like, Ooh, how do we get that variation out of there? Whereas before it was like, oh, it, it came off the spinner and it was stuck together. Hey, we're, we're good to go. <laughs> Um, so definitely, yeah, in terms of the quality, uh, we started our own, you know, knitwear line and the knitting machines has been also a fascinating learning curve for us as, uh, as we take our own yarns and run it on our own machines, we get to see how the unique breeds, the unique twists, how they interact in a, uh, on a mechanical knitting operation. And so now we're adjusting our yarns to better suit that that knitwear. Hmm. I really want to talk about that, but I want to go back to something you said a little bit earlier Mm -hmm. first, which was adapting to the changes that COVID-19 is bringing. And I'm wondering if you could talk about some of the ways that you see it impacting um, this industry and your ranchers and your mill and how you're adapting to all of it. We're talking right now in the end of April in 2020. Yeah, it's a really crazy time we are living in. Um, we shut down production to just three days a week for the last two months. Uh, just our demand for wholesale yarns basically evaporated. Um, we also do a lot of custom production for ranchers who want to do their own line of, of products, and and that's kind of evaporated as well. So there's two big segments of our of our industry or our clientele base have, have basically evaporated in the last two months. 
uh, will it come back? Um, I think it's going to come back in a different way. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty on our end in terms of how the future looks. Our approach to it is to develop some new products that might diversify us in other areas of, of the industry um, that might be able to be flexible and changing. And I would say that's the benefit of us being a small scale is that we are flexible. And so we can quickly change our, our production line um, to meet new market needs. And, and that gives us a flexibility that some of your large commodity industry can't uh, achieve. Um, but it's going to be, you know, the ranchers are facing a hard time right now. I talked to one yesterday, came in, and he said the the lamb market, for those of you who don't know, the on the meat side, a lot of ranchers, typically 80% of their income comes from selling the meat. And so right now they have a surplus of meat in the markets. Restaurants aren't buying meat, so they have a, a big surplus of warehouses full of, of lamb. And so the ranchers can't sell their lambs um, and the wool prices have gone down substantially over the past year so as an industry wide there's a couple major issues facing those sheep producers and without sheep producers there's no wool and without wool there's no wool mill so it's definitely something that we look at regularly and try and find unique ways to work at those producers. One of the things we're, we're looking at doing is we have a certain volume that goes through the wool mill every year um, and we're trying to find a way to brand a larger volume of wool that we might not process ourselves, but that we'd at least trace which ranchers it came from, and it might be a way for those large apparel companies to find a traceable source of uh, good premium American wool, Hmm. and that might help stabilize some of those ranchers that are out there a little. Yeah. Have you been finding demand from some of the larger apparel companies that are are interested in something like that? We do, yep, and and pretty regularly um, we'll get calls asking for... Um, that kind of U.S. supply, and, you know, year after year. But even now with the, the COVID-19 um, crisis, we've just this past week had probably three or four new inquiries about um, people who are wanting to change their apparel line to be in a U.S. source. Um, and so I think there's that demand out there, and I think that demand is going to grow over the next six to nine months. Yeah, that's definitely something hopeful. Are ranchers, I mean, this is shearing time, I'm guessing, or... So are people still able to proceed with that um, as they usually were? Or is, is they are. It's, um, I know there's not a lot of shears in the country. So it's a, for the past probably 10 years or so, they've had a shearing shortage. And there's only a few crews that go around for most of the state or the region. And I know they're very worried. They don't want to get um, the COVID-19 spreading throughout their shearing crew. They're, so there a lot of on-site precautions are being taken to make sure the shearing crews stay healthy. Um, but they are still out there daily going out there and shearing those, giving those sheep a nice haircut. That's good. <laughs> that is good. So you talked a little bit about how you have also moved into knitting machines and apparel, which is one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you guys again for the podcast, um, because you've recently launched a Kickstarter um, that just got underway making wool clothing. So tell me about that. Yeah, it's, um, we started, oh, probably six or seven years ago. My dad actually funded our first production run of, of wool hoodies through a facility out in, in Sacramento, California. And um, it was our first batch. I think we got about 20 hoodies and gave them to all family and friends and just loved them. And, and so we, we've been contracting out those hoodies for, for yeah, again, the six, seven years now in... I guess it would have been 2016. 
the mill or the f- facility we used in Sacramento shut down, and he moved overseas. And so we had a, it took us about a year to find another knitting facility in the United States that could knit our hoodies for us um, at our scale. So we were doing pretty small batch production. And we found a facility in New York, and so we've been using them for a while, but lead times were pretty long, and it was really hard for us to do custom knitwear because the, the, the yarns that we do, they all act a little differently, especially when we do ranch-specific uh, yarn runs where it might be a producer from California might send in a, a small clip of wool and they say, I want some hoodies made out of it. We needed the ability to be able to see how that yarn performed in knitting because um, we'd get feedback from the knitter and they'd say, oh, this yarn, it's not working. And there would be the questions of, well, why? What, what's the details of that yarn that's not working um, and how can we change that? And so we had been thinking we need to get our own machines so we can do it in-house. We do so much custom work, we need to be able to have our hands on it and really learn um, about how those different fiber types are acting in the knitting side. And so the opportunity came back. Actually, the the gentleman we were using from Sacramento all those years ago, he shut down his facility overseas, and he contacted us and asked us if we wanted to bring his machines here. And so that's how that conversation started. As of oh, February of last year, 2019, the machines arrived, and then we looked at them and said, oh, my gosh, what have we got ourselves into? Now we have to learn how to run these things. <laughs> so we jumped in uh, feet first. Fortunately, um, that gentleman, he actually came here and lived here for three months to give us initial training. So without that, we definitely wouldn't have started the operation. And then his sister lived in China, and she came here for a month to train us on a garment assembly, the linking skill set. Um, again, another skill set that's lacking in the United States. So it got us going, and for the last year, we've been uh, adding new products and expanding our apparel line. And it's always been in our mind that we wanted to do a apparel line for our kids. And um, I've got six other brothers and sisters and amongst us all there's 19 kids and so we're like we need some clothing for for these little tykes um so it's been about a year of development we've been looking at different styles and designs and we finally came up with one that we did a few initial prototypes for and decided to launch that via a kickstarter campaign here this week so that's uh currently underway to do our, our tagatots uh, named after the boreal forest around a lot of North America, Canada, uh, and the Northern Hemisphere. So it's kind of a fun project. Yeah, I was really excited to see that launch and to grab a sweater for my kid. And they look really <laughs> cute. Can you explain what the different um, items are that you're making and for what ages? So that if people sure. are interested, they can go. So yeah. the goal was an apparel for kids that lasts more than six months. And as we all know with kids that... Sometimes they, you get something from the store, and six months later, their their elbows are sticking out where their their hands should have been. So, uh, kids grow at such a, a fast rate. So we wanted a, a clothing that was versatile for a broad range of ages. And so our toddler or our kids' hoodie is sized for ages three to six. Um, but I do have a nephew; he's seven. He wears it too. So we, it's the same hoodie. So you can get them when they're three years old, and they can wear it for three, four, five years. Um, and that was the real goal. We knew wool is a, a pretty expensive raw material. At our scale of production, it's going to make a pretty expensive uh, garment. And how do we make that garment last for many years to help um, save on that cost for that family? So that was kind of one of the big goals there was to size it to be flexible. And in doing so, we came up with a knit structure that's very flexible, very stretchy. 
um, it allows for a lot of growth and then we design it with a rolled cuff on the sleeve so that as they grow we can roll that cuff down and extend the length of the sleeves um, for the child as they're growing so there's the the kids hoodie we have a toddler hoodie as well that size for nine months to up to two years um, and it's just kind of a, a fun a different knit structure kind of a, a real um, stable knit structure designed to be washed more frequently um, so that was the goal for the toddler one we know toddlers aren't necessarily clean when they eat and so we wanted to make something that could be get dirty and get washed easily um, we don't do super wash so they're all um, non-super washed yarns we tend to like that better here I think it provides a better bounce in the finished yarn and a little more squish in the finished fiber um, and so we design it so that it could be washed um, uh, without having it to be um, dry cleaned so that was kind of another goal in there and then we also have a leggings so we wanted pants to go with those nice hoodies and so we have leggings um, they're not for the, to the toddlers they're for the 3 to 6T range we might develop one for toddlers as well but then sizing gets a little trickier for those little tykes so we're still working on that and on our, our side that's great um, where can people go to see your Kickstarter? Yeah, um, you go to kickstarter.com and, and type in Taiga Tots, and that's T-A-I-G-A, uh, Tots, and we're on there on the Kickstarter page. We also started a new website that really highlights our, our quality of the fiber that we do. So we have our Mountain Meadow Wool website, but we also started a mountainmerino.com website. So that's mountainmerino.com, and on there is a, a full link to our, our Kickstarter and our um, Taiga Tots uh, apparel line. That's great. And I'll also link to those in the show notes so people can get right over to there. Great. Oh, that's awesome. So are you guys thinking that apparel can be a significant part of how you're able to work through the wool that you have in your mill? That's correct. Um, the past, oh, two years, uh, we've really started doing a lot more retail tours. Obviously this year we're not expecting a lot of retail tourism to come through. But it's been a, a big part of the last couple of years is people coming through, passing through on the interstate, and they want something fun to do, and we give them a tour of our facility. And I would say maybe 5 or 10% are textile users, so they're either knitters or weavers. And most of them just want to see manufacturing. And the clothing line gives us a way to give them something, either a hat or a, a hoodie, um, a blanket that they can take home with them. And so we do see that it, it definitely diversifies us quite a bit to reach new markets. That's great. Is there anything else on the horizon that you're working on that you're excited to share? Well, there's a, a wool mask I'm working on right now. and mm. We've got a prototype going to a hospital here tomorrow to do filtration tests to see how well it performs. And I think there's a lot of potential to create a, a high-performance wool mask um, that we could uh, help the public with for the coming months. So that's one of my recent endeavors. And so, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that, that performs tomorrow. That's great. Are, is, is wool performing differently than other sorts of fibers? Like, are there reasons that wool could be beneficial for some parts of this mask? Yeah, so, you know, historically people just don't use wool because it's uh, expensive material. So if you're looking at a face mask that costs, you know, 46 cents versus ours will be, you know, $12. Um, so there's quite the difference there in terms of, of price range. Uh, wool um, 
it's you know odor resistant, so that's a good thing in your mask. Uh, obviously, you'd be wanting to wash it regularly, but odor resistance provides a good aspect to it. Wool um, absorbs moisture readily, so that hot breath of your mouth um, is going to take that moisture away from your skin. Um, so that's a, a good aspect of it. And then we're experimenting with um, is electrostatic forces within different layers of wool and different materials that are added to the wool to try and create better removal of viruses. So that's our goal for our research and what we're trying to do um, is to create that performance-driven mask rather than just a, a physical barrier. Interesting. Well, Ben, I so appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing your story and about the the Kickstarter that I'm sure people are going to be excited to support. And also just in general, I appreciate the business that you and your family are running and the yarn um, that we are so lucky to get to source from you and send to our customers. So I just want to say that I thank you for that. And I wanted to ask um, before we sign off, if you have any closing advice for weavers and textile artists about how to support domestic fiber production and businesses like yours i mean i think the obvious is buy things and support them but i'm just wondering <laughs> right. if you have anything more specific well, well i will put this out um in terms of advice i think sometimes as textile artists or weavers or ordinators as well um we fail to look at the skill set that is there that exists and i, I would say my advice don't undervalue that skill set um right now when when production supply chains across the globe are being disrupted those skills of weaving, um, textile art, a lot of that is a, a long-lasting skill that can be passed on from generation to generation. So I would say, first of all, definitely don't undervalue that that skill set. It is extremely valuable. And I actually, I when I have questions about different types of breeds of wool or sheep, often I'll go to textile artists or weavers or, or knitters who actually might have a, a hands-on experience of that because most of your, your large commodity industry wool's wool and so there's not that knowledge base that's done at the, on the hand level on, on the individual scale so um, in terms of helping out in terms of the domestic production and businesses um, there's quite a few companies out there that are doing domestic production and so the big question for everyone all of us consumers even you know regular household products that might have to start getting made in the United States is what are we willing to pay in terms of that price difference for that American um, story. If we look at, and I'll use the example of knitwear since it's something I'm working on right now, is a, a comparable facility in China. We've got five knitting machines, and, and they're big industrial machines. A comparable facility in China might have a thousand machines and three to four thousand linkers who are assembling those garments. Um, and so you look at that scale difference there, and then and the wage gap. Uh, it's shocking, really, in terms of that, that disparity between production here in the United States and then overseas. Uh, you know, kind of textiles tend to find the cheapest labor source globally, and you look at the past 100 years or so, or 200, 300 years, and your textile industry, the hub, has moved around the globe following the cheapest labor, and I think that, that mentality has to start shifting um, for us U.S. consumers as a whole. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Ben. And thank you, Sarah. No, I appreciate it. And thank you for you guys and the work you guys do in the industry. Take care. Thanks. Bye, Sarah. That's a wrap. If you'd like to see photos of the mill and of the new wool clothes for kids that are available on Kickstarter, 
All of the photos and links are in our show notes at www.gistyarn.com slash episode hyphen 105. That's G-I-S-T-Y-A-R-N dot com slash episode 105. If you have any kids in your life, I really encourage you to join me in supporting their Kickstarter. Next week on the podcast, LaShawn will be speaking with Stephanie Pinario, the founder and primary weaver at Shed Textile Company. Shed Textiles focuses on the art of hand weaving and local fibers in New York State. The fibers used in their pieces are hand-sourced locally from farmers, spinners, shearers, dyers, makers, tradesmen, and the countless regional fiber festivals that dot the countryside each year. Each artisanal design is created by hand, beginning with the initial stages of fiber selection to hand warping, dressing the loom, and then weaving on traditional wooden floor looms. We're excited to have Stephanie as a guest on the podcast, so tune in next week for that episode. And until next time, happy weaving!